Do take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You'll notice we're going to read more than just one verse this morning. I don't want that to uh, deceive you into thinking that we're going to make more progress than is on the surface this, this morning. We're going to read to verse 14 of the first chapter, but we're going to have to go line by line, <clears throat> I'm afraid, in the months and years to come. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. And we'll end at verse 14. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Well, in those opening lines, the Apostle Paul has drawn our attention and the attention of the readers, or the first readers of this letter, to a concise account of who and what a Christian is. Who and what a Christian is. A saint and faithful in Christ Jesus. He then went on to pass on a greeting and to pronounce a blessing. And that introduction has prepared us and given us a hint as to the how of the apostles' way of teaching. These epistles of Paul and Peter and John are not many doctrinal statements or systems. They're not handed to us in the form of a systematic or dogmatic theology. These are occasional writings. They come addressed to particular people, 
particular churches, or in this case, a particular group of churches. You'll find even that the most important crucial texts on major doctrines appear in the most unlikely places. So, for example, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's talking to them about their giving, like what you give on a Sunday as you bring your offering to God and you give your tithes to God. And he's talking about that theme. And in the middle of it all, he, he, there pops up in his writing this expression. He takes us straight into one of the deepest doctrines of our faith when he says, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. In another letter, He's writing to people about humility, the need for humility, and the need for us in the church to serve one another in love when in pops a reference to Christ in relation to God, first of all, being in the form of God, and then in relation to us, being in the form of a human being, being the form of a man, making himself nothing, and becoming a servant. So for the apostle, you see, the Holy Trinity is not merely a theoretical idea, nor is it a doctrinal formula. He sees the presence of God, the Trinity, behind every action and in all of life. This God is the God who gave us existence and keeps us in existence This is the God who is present with you at all times, sees what you're seeing at all times, sees what you're doing at all times, is with you in all times and circumstances in your life. To Paul, God was a present reality. Which brings us then to our reading for today. It's affectionately known as Paul's scrawl. Sprawl. Because it's all over the place. I mean, it seriously is, from a superficial point of view, all over the place. Somebody has put it like this The length to which he sometimes draws out his sentences, in which thought succeeds thought, clause is added to clause. Parenthesis follows another parenthesis until eventually the apostle pauses, as it were, to take a breath. And you have to imagine this as you're reading, as you're reading this. Don't imagine it the way the English version has it here with commas and full stops and capital letters at the beginning and all that. None of that is there in the original. In the original, this is simply one sentence, verses 3 to 14. There's no grammar in here. We have to make it in English in such a way as you will understand it and and recognize where the movements are. Paul is standing and he is dictating, probably at some speed, I imagine, to an amanuensis who's here, writing down every word he says. Paul doesn't, doesn't say comma, full stop, capital letter, or whatever we say when we're dicta- we don't do dictation anymore, of course. Uh, the machine does it all for us. But, but in the old days, when we did dictate and somebody was taking it down, that's what would have happened. But not in Paul's day. He just 
pours it out, and what he pours out we have here in a single sentence. 202 words. The second longest sentence in the Pauline Library. The longest being in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, which comes in at 218 words. But it's in this crucial passage that we find Paul outlining God's salvation plan. God's salvation plan. Somebody has put it like this. He provides us with a map of redemption. And we, with and in due time, will pick our ways through the particulars. We're going to We're going to be going to every one of these verses, every line of this passage, and we're going to mine it for all it's worth because it is packed, literally packed full of truth that we need to know. But today we're taking a 30,000 foot view of it. And even from this height, we can, I think, see as we glance down that there that this is, in fact, as its main theme, God's unchanging plan of redemption. And we see indications, and this has been observed by, by the church from the very beginning of the church right up into present, uh, even 21st century theologians. There is almost a liturgical feel to this passage. There are things that are repeated in in a liturgical way. And in fact, the way Paul begins this passage is very liturgical. He starts with this benediction, or as the Hebrews have it, a berikah, one of the most common prayers of Israel, something that is central to Jewish piety. Long before Paul's day, Jews were using lengthy benedictions in their corporate worship. They used benedictions, briefer ones, one-liners, in their private daily prayer life. And they used this language of blessed and blessing as a way of praising God for his many gifts. We find illustrations, for example, from David in 2 Samuel chapter 22. David has won won a a series of battles against his enemies. And he writes, composes a a praise for God's presence with him and the success that he's had to celebrate those victories. And the one that you'll read in 2 Samuel 22, in due time becomes a composition uh, and finds its way into the liturgy of Israel in Psalm 18. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Solomon, when he's at the installation of the Ark of the Covenant in the new temple that he's built, he composes his own benediction for that worship experience. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all he has promised, Not one word has failed in all his good promises. And then in the New Testament, Zechariah, 
acting as a priest in the temple there in Jerusalem. He's announced the news that he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He anticipates the coming of the Messiah. So, in keeping with ancient Israel's worship liturgy, Paul here is giving us language that we can use in ours. And so in Ephesians, we discover that the main theme is this great salvation for both Jew and Gentile. God's church is destined to be an international, interracial, transcultural movement. And the language of John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians. This is God's new society. God's new society. So our letter then begins by doing what the other benedictions have done. Blessed be God, the God of Israel. It it kind of elevates us. It points us away from ourselves. It points us away from the people around us even. It points us beyond time and space and history. It points us to the God of Israel. The great God who made the universe. The great God that we come to worship. This is Paul's faith. The faith of Israel. And those, that faith shaped the words that were recited every Sabbath in the liturgy of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, is one. This is echoed throughout Jewish worship in, under the Old Covenant. Psalm 41, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Psalm 72, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. This passage then sustains that focus as this benediction uh, is repeated throughout the passage. Uh, the word, the Greek word gives us our English word eulogy. That's the word for the benediction here. And it comes up as an adjective, as a, particip- a participle, and as a noun within this sentence. And this is still the case, by the way, in Judaism. One of, pray- one of the benedictions used in synagogue services today is this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, the great and mighty and revered God, the most high God who bestoweth loving kindness and possessest all things, who rememberest the pious deeds of the patriarchs, and in love will bring a redeemer to their children's children for thy name's sake. You see how this modern benediction borrows from the benedictions of Scripture and is built into the worship and the liturgy and is the same in our Christian 
worship too. Our attention is drawn to the God of Israel, to whom the praise is ascribed. But you notice how here it takes a Christian turn. We're shown how to approach this God in Christian terms. Paul is still speaking about that invisible, indivisible, immaterial God, the Lord God of Israel. He's speaking about the one God of the Shema, Israel, the Lord is one. And he is going to describe in this paragraph, this sentence, the action of this one God as it's parsed out in terms of unity and triunity. He's going to tell us that absolutely every spiritual blessing is lavished upon the church and upon every Christian, every one of us. We are chosen by God the Father. We are redeemed by God the Son. And we are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. Paul identifies the God of Israel as God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he, by doing so, introduces into the sentence the repetition of the word Yahweh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one. The threefold triad naming of God in the Shema is now replicated here in this sentence where we, ha- we, are, we are drawn in closer to who this triad is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul identifies the God of Israel as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows us how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the words of one of the commentators I read this week, shapes redemption, builds and nurtures the church, and preserves believers for the consummation till the consummation of all things. Now only God is blessed or blessed in himself. This word scholars have shown us from which we get the word eulogy as I've said only ever refers to God. It never refers to humans. But I want you to see the the magic of this text that's before us. Something that belongs only to God. He alone is blessed forever. He can say in one of his writings. Only God is blessed. But guess what? In this wonderful sentence. Here is God who is forever blessed. Acting. Get this. To bless you. To bless you. His church, his people, you who believe in him, his saints, to do for you which something which is reserved throughout the Bible for him and him alone, his exclusive purpose. 
That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? We, we glide over these things as we read the passage. We don't see the, what we're intended to see, that God is stooping to bless creatures like us. Even though he inhabits eternity and is timeless, we also see in this passage that there is a, a, his action towards us in time has a kind of chronological movement which we can begin to grasp because we live in time. We, we need help. We need help in understanding that timeless God. So in the language of Fred Sanders, past election and predestination, present possession of redemption and forgiveness, future inheritance secured by the Holy Spirit himself, by his guarantee, his guarantee. Here we are then in something we can, we can grasp the timeless will and purpose of God that's instantly done. We're within time so we can, we can understand this language that Paul uses here for our sakes, baby talk, so that we babies can learn to understand the language. Well, that's the introduction. Now the sermon. There are just three points. These are very brief today. Three points. As believers, we bless God the Father. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one, the Father, who has blessed believers with blessings beyond comprehension, blessings without limit. And Scripture leads us to think of God's eternal decision to create the world and to redeem sinners. Of course, as someone has put it, uh, Stephen Duby of uh, University of Phoenix, of course, if God just is the God that he is, with or without the world, he knows, wills, and loves in the imminent fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, even without reference to creation or the plan of salvation. That's very important. In other words, there there is no external force or influence acting upon God to make God do something, whether it's create the world or redeem and save you and me. No pressure upon him to do that. There is no has to or must do in God's knowing, willing, and loving. God does not require something outside of himself to know or to will or to love. Whether it's the universe or our planet or us ourselves, Yet this is what he's freely chosen to do by creating us and sustaining the universe and then acting in Christ within the space-time continuum in which we live. And that decision by God is often described as his counsel, his purpose, his plan, or his decree. We'll need to look at those in closer detail some other time. 
You see how Paul in verse 4 places this decree before the foundation of the world. In other words, before there was anything, before he made the universe, before he made our planet, before he made us. So nothing about us is influencing his decision. He made all of that so that he might pour his love upon you, upon you. He decided, he chose that he would do all this, notice, in Christ. There's a phrase that if when you're reading this, look out for this phrase. It's found at the end of the opening of the benediction in verse 3, in Christ. It's found at the end of the statement concerning God's eternal choice and predestination of believers to be his holy people and his adopted children at the end of the section 4 to six. At the end of his description of Christ's central role in the redemption of the world, verses 10 to 12, he set this forth in Christ. And then look out for, as you read this, look out for the phrase according to, or in as much as. Kata is the word in Greek. It's used to introduce themes that we will explore in the coming years. God has blessed believers in as much, verse 3, as he chose them, he predestined them, he redeemed them, and he revealed to them a mystery. The benediction is three active particles. We're blessed, we're predestined, And our eyes have been opened and we've been shown the mystery of our adoption and his eternal purposes. And the benediction has this refrain, a liturgical refrain, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glorious grace, for the praise of his glory. And each time that phrase is used, it concludes a section. So we are, we are capable. That's why they've been able to put it down the way they put it down in English. We are, you know, if you read very carefully, you see, you get into Paul's mind, you get into the way Paul thinks, and you can begin to see there's a beginning and an end to little sections within it. That's, and these are the pointers. These are the only pointers to that, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. But each one of those, to the praise of his glories, refers to the Trinity. The section that deals with the Father, to the praise of his glory. The section that deals with the Son and his redemption, to the praise of his glory. The section that talks about the Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory. The whole of the Trinity is praised. Though in this first section, the God the Father is the one from whom every good comes. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The Father has determined to give us everything. So Paul's sprawl is not as random as it looks from first reading. John Webster of St. Andrews University argued the passage is scattered with gestures towards God's holy realized life. Now, what, what does that mean? That means this. God has a life 
God had a life before there was any other form of life. And the life God has in himself is great. He loves it. He's never been lonely, never been sad, never been blue, never been lost for company. Because God, as one God, is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the eternity of being God, God has never ceased to be happy. The Trinity is God's happy place. And the wonder is that he wants to share that happy place with you in that happy place. He is forever blessed. But he wants to bless you. Well, very quickly, as believers, we bless God the Father, we bless God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Thomas Aquinas puts this in his commentary on Ephesians. The Lord Jesus Christ is he without whom no blessings are given. Without whom no blessings are given. God will only bless people in Christ. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ. It's God's grace that's extended to us in Christ. The Father through the Son will rectify what Adam broke. Now this means something in the way we think of the Son even when he becomes human, takes on a human form. It means that the Son has all the power of the Father. Because he told us, all the Father has, he's given to his Son. That means all the Father's authority, among other things. Not only that, the Father's will is his will. There's only one will in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One will. Now, this is a direct challenge, of course, to some modern ideologies that have grown up in some parts of evangelicalism in an attempt to uh, distinguish relationships, human relationships, specifically husband and wife, but the, the, you could use it for anything that you dreamed up and write a book about it and you'd sell the book because there are a lot of people out there that'll buy anything. And, and here's, here, here was the notion that the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity were a direct comparison with uh, the husband, the wife, and the baby in marriage. Well, the, the father is obviously the husband, the, the son is obviously the wife, and the baby is obviously the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes you wonder about the intellectual uh, lack or of people buying into this. This, this, was, this is what tell you this was really popular at one time. And uh, here's the problem. You have to ascribe, if you say that, these things, you have to ascribe to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit three different wills. Because if the Father has authority to tell the Son to do something, then the Son has to be willing to do it. So he has a will, the Father has a will. Three wills. 
you also have to start thinking, well, that, that means if he's got separate will, then there must be a separate consciousness. So you have three separate spheres of consciousness. And once you say those things, you no longer have a holy trinity. You have a tripartite God. You have three gods. The Father God, the Son God, the Spirit God. It is a very evil error. Not only because of the way in which it deconstructs the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, but it also deconstructs the nature of human relationships. Well, the Son then comes as a man and as a human being like us. He is subordinate to God as a human being. He's come as the second Adam. As the second Adam, he comes to obey the Father as a man, not as the Son of God, but as a man in his human nature. And he doesn't do it because he needs to do it. He does it for our sakes. He comes as the second and last Adam. He comes as a redeemer, sorry, a priest, to offer up the final sacrifice for sin. He comes as a redeemer to pay the price for our freedom by his blood. He comes as a divine son to do what only God could do because as the son, he has all the nature of the father. All of my five children are humans because they were born of a human mother and father. So therefore, they have human nature. The son is not born with a mother. The son comes from the father, eternally begotten of the father. That means eternally, he has all that there is of God, all of it. He is God the son. Because he's the son of God then and fully God. Therefore, he lacks no power, no wisdom, no authority that the father has, since God is one. Instead, we talk about the son's saving mission. His mission was, if you choose to accept it, his mission was to come into time, the space-time continuum in which we are, to take on our human nature, and in that human nature become our Savior. He would take upon himself the ability to die which is the wage of sin, and he would die as the wage of sin. And he would raise that human nature from the dead again so that he might do the same for you, raise you from the dead. Not only raise you from the dead, but, but raise you to where he comes from. Raise you into the very presence of God. Give you something that actually only belongs to Almighty God alone, and that is eternal life. And you find that in the incarnation, when Jesus becomes man, you find that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the incarnation of Christ. The Father, we read in the Old Testament, Psalm 45, I believe it is. The Father is preparing a body for Jesus from 
before the foundation of the world. In fact, the body that that God designed for Jesus to have may very well be the image that you and I now carry. These bodies are likened to his glorious body now. And I think our, our bodies, as they are at the moment, bodies that are liable to death, are like the body that he took when he became a human being. And it was the Holy Spirit who did the miracle in the womb of Mary in creating, taking, using her DNA as the basis for the human life of Christ. So thirdly, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We bless the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit completes and perfects our salvation. Do you know he is present with you and in you? One of the great wonders of him, Jesus sending the Holy Spirit is that he would be with you and in you, with you and in you. How do I know he's with me and in me? Are you here today and do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead? You can't do that without the Holy Spirit. So if you're able to do that, if you were able to profess your faith along with us this morning as we confessed in the creed, well, we believe if you did that, You can't do that without the Holy Spirit being with you and in you. And when you pray, did you pray with us, our Father who art in heaven? Did you use that language? And do you ever pray to God as your Father? You know you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that works within our hearts, Romans chapter 8. And he enables us to cry out, Abba. Father, Romans 5. So so the Holy Spirit is vital to your Christian life. And the the Holy Spirit has been actively, fully engaged in the work of salvation from Jesus' conception, through his baptism and temptation, in his resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? You know what the Bible says? The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Oops. It also says... Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. And it also says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because the actions of God are always indivisible. God always acts as the Holy Trinity when he's acting outside of himself. Well, it's the Holy Spirit then that will bring us to the consummation, that is, to the fullness of the life that God has promised to us. So this very long sentence, far from being dull, has introduced us to a monumental insight into our relationship with God. And God willing, in however long it takes, we will unpack it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul. We thank you that he wasn't good at grammar and just poured out what was on his mind because there are so many riches here packed into this one big long sentence for us to find and for us to mine and for us to apply to ourselves. We pray for your Holy Spirit to go with us today as we seek to serve you in the world and serve those that we live with, work with, who cross our path from moment to moment and day to day in our everyday life. 
and be a little edition of Jesus for them to point them to him. We pray in his strong name. Amen.